Um, why don't you guys open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, that's okay. We're going to have the scriptures behind me on the screen. <clears throat> and before we jump in, we'll let, let you know, um, we're beginning our sexual sin series today. Um, as we jump into the text, and in case, we, I think we sent a letter to our kids' stuff. Uh, families, if you have a child that's probably, uh, man, less than 16, you might want to put them either in the kids' stuff ministry or in our students. And I think they're going to have, I think they're going to have some volunteers out there that will help you down there. But just want to warn you, I didn't want, I've got a 14-year-old, and I didn't want him in here. He's in the students, and so just to let you know. All right, so we're jumping back into the book of Ephesians Ephesians is broken down into basically two parts. You got Ephesians chapter 1 through chapter 3. And what chapter 1 through 3 does is it um, explains to us everything that God has done for us to be saved, to save us from our sin. That's Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. And then Ephesians chapter 4 verse 6 is Paul explaining to us, okay, in light of everything that God has done to save us from our sin, how are we now to live? What does it look like for you as a child of God, as a Christian, to put off the old self, he says, and put on the new self and walk as this new creation in Christ? He talks about chapter 3 and 4, talking about living in unity, about being slow to anger, about being quick to forgive, about being a truth teller. It's all these examples of what it looks like to live in light of God saving us. Now, so we get to chapter 5 today, and chapter 5 church is going to address two subjects. First subject it's going to address, we're going to see it today, it addresses sexual sin. All right? And then later on in the chapter, it's going to address marriage. Now, notice that I did not say that chapter 5 addresses sex. It, it, it hits that, but mainly Paul is addressing to the church in Ephesus their issues of sexual sin. And so we're going to talk about that for a couple of weeks, a few weeks actually, and then we'll hit marriage later on in the chapter. And so here's what I want to do, just kind of give you the point of what Paul is saying. He's basically... Again, making the point, this is how we live our lives in light of what God has done for us and people who are living their lives in light of what God has done for them abstain from sexual immorality. That's his point. But let's jump in. Ephesians 5.1, he says a couple of things to us before he gets into the sexual sin um, and talking about it. And let's read this together because it's actually foundational. Ephesians 5.1. Paul says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. He says, be imitators of God. He's writing to the church. Be imitators of God as beloved children. That's the first thing he says. Just very simple. He comes kind of out of the blocks and he says, hey, before we get into all this sexual stuff, you need to understand and you need to remember something. That you are a child of God. And that your calling in your life is to imitate your father. You're a child, your beloved child of God. Imitate him Watch what God does. Watch how God walks and walk like him. And I was thinking about it. I have a 14-year-old son and I have a 9-year-old son. And both of them are, are very smart kids. I think they probably got that from their mom. And I was thinking about it that they are probably going to be able to do whatever they want to in their life. I mean, they're that smart. They're going to be able to do whatever they want to do. And honestly, I'd be proud of them, whatever they decide that they want to do. But here's the thing. It hit me that I don't think there's anything with the exception of them becoming men of God and walking with Jesus, that there is nothing that would make me prouder, that there is nothing that would honor me more than for God to call those two boys to preach. I can't think of anything. 
that would honor me more and make me more prouder to see one of my sons walk up into this pulpit or any pulpit and faithfully preach the word of God. Now, why is that? Because they're my sons. They're my beloved sons. And they would be walking in my footsteps. And that would just absolutely honor me. And that's what Paul's saying. He goes, understand, before we talk about the negative, let's talk about the positive. And the positive is this church, you are a son or you are a daughter of the king. That's who you are. Imitate him. Follow him. And then he goes on, let's look at the second one. Let's look at verse uh, one again. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. And walk in love. As Christ loved us, gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. Paul says, church, one of the ways that you can be an imitator of God as a beloved child is you walk in love. Now to understand what in the world he means by that, look at the next part of the phrase there in verse two. He says, and walk in love as Christ loved us. And then the key part here, he says, and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He's saying, okay, church, just in the same way that Jesus gave himself up, that you and me as imitators of God, what we're called to do is walk in love. We are to give ourselves up to the will of God. Just in the same way Jesus surrendered to the will of God. As imitators, we are to surrender to the will of God. Just in the same way Jesus came to this earth and said, I am not my own, I'm gonna follow you, Father. We in the same way are to say, I now am not my own, Father. I am going to follow you. And then Paul says, when you do that, it's a fragrant offering to the Lord. Smells good to God, is what he says. So he starts off with those two verses, and then what Paul's gonna do now is he's gonna jump in here, and I want you to watch The first example Paul gives of a person who's being an imitator of God, giving himself or herself up as a fragrant offering to the Lord. Ephesians 5, 1 again, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then in verse three, he jumps in. He says, but sexual immorality, Sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named, it must be even named among you as is proper among the saints. Now I want to stop very quickly and talk about the word saints. Paul calls the church and he's calling us saints. That is, that's not a Catholic word that means super Christian. That's just a word that means Christian. In the Greek it means the holy ones. The holy ones means set apart. And so Paul is saying, hey, there's some behaviors that are not even proper to be named among the people that have been set apart for God. Church, that's us. That's you. You're a saint. You're a holy one if you're in Christ Jesus. You and your life have been set apart for the purpose of glorifying God. And Paul says, here's some things that shouldn't even be named among us who've been set apart for God. And the first one, he says, is sexual immorality. Sexual morality. Now that comes from a Greek word. It's one word in the Greek, not two. It's one word. It's called porneia. And it just means that. Sexual morality. Sexual debauchery. Sexual sin. It's where we get our English word pornography or porn. And I was writing that sentence in my notes as I was prepping for a sermon this week. It hit me. It's interesting 
that the porn industry actually calls itself what it really is. That's fascinating to me. That the porn industry actually calls itself what it is. The, the, the porn industry calls itself sexual debauchery. I just thought that was interesting. And Paul is writing to the church, the holy ones, the set apart ones, and he's saying, I want you to know that porneia should have no part. Sexual sin should have no part in the lives of the people that God has set apart for himself. And then he goes on. Now look at the second thing he says, should have no part in us who he has set apart. Look at verse three again. He says, but sexual immorality and all impurity... And all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And so the second thing the scripture states that has no part in the lives of those of us who he has set apart for himself is impurity. Now what does that mean? It comes from, it's a different word than porneia. It comes from the Greek word akatharsia. Akatharsia. Paul's writing and saying, first of all, porneia should have no part. The second thing that should have no part is akatharsia, and it's a word that means to be mixed. Paul says, porneia can have no part in, in the people God has set apart, and to be mixed can have no part in the people that God has set apart for himself. In other words, what Paul is saying is this, is that as a believer, as a child of God, as a Christian, as a holy one, you cannot have one foot in the kingdom and one foot in the world. That's what it means to be mixed. That's what it means to be impure. You've got a part of your heart that you are giving to Jesus. And at the very same time, you've got a part of your heart that you're giving away to some other thing that has nothing to do with the Lord. Paul is referring here to people that, that are hanging out in both worlds. The kingdom and the culture. Paul is speaking here to folks that were going to church, that go to church, but they, they look no different than the people of the world. He's talking to the people who say they love God with their mouths, but their sexual ethic is no different than the people that don't love God. Paul is saying to the church, look, do not be mixed. Do not be impure for that can have no part in the lives of the people that God has set apart for himself. And church, I want to begin this series by letting you know that I know. I'm a pastor, but I'm also a guy. I'm a man. I know how difficult it is to be unmixed in this culture. I, I understand how difficult it is to be pure and to walk in an unmixed purity in, in a culture that is, is, is like the one we're walking in. I know how hard and difficult it is to be pure in a relationship with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or fiance. I understand. I've been there. I, I understand how incredibly difficult it is to be unmixed in a culture that doesn't even view sexual sin as sinful anymore. I mean, we had the luxury for years in this country where even the culture were, would look at what the scriptural definition of sexual sin is and they would agree with it. We no longer live in that culture. The culture does not view sexual sin as sinful anymore. It's hard to be met, unmixed in that culture. I understand that it's incredibly difficult to be pure and unmixed in, and go to a university where a hookup culture is just the norm. 
it's just completely socially acceptable. Nobody views that as wrong in any shape, form, or fashion. I understand how incredibly difficult it is to be unmixed in a culture where uh, they're releasing on Valentine's Day a movie like Fifty Shades of Grey and then kind of holding that picture of sexuality up and saying that this is love, which is a lie from the pit of hell. And we're going to talk more about that. I understand how incredibly difficult it is to to be pure and unmixed in, in a society where for the very first time in all of history, for the very first time in the history of mankind, we have access to the internet and therefore we have access to pornography 24 hours a day, seven days a week, right at our fingertips in the privacy of our own home. I understand how incredibly difficult it is to walk as a believer that is unmixed in that culture. But here's the thing I want you to hear. Is that in the midst of all that difficulty, and in the midst of all that chaos, in the midst of all that turmoil, the word of God speaks to us. And it's saying to us, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. As beloved children, walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering, as fragrant sacrifice to God and let sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Paul comes right out of the blocks and he says, I don't care what the culture's saying and I don't care what the culture's doing. You and I are children of God and we are to walk differently. And so what I want to do with just the rest of our time today is I want to answer two questions. I want to answer the question is, uh, rather the question of how big of a deal is sexual sin to God? How big of a deal is it to God? Is sexual sin a big deal to him? And if it is a big deal to him, then why? I think it's an important question. Why does God care about this? And so let's jump in and look at the first question. Is sexual sin a big deal to God? And Paul gives us a resounding answer. Look again at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And then verse 4, he says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. And I'm not going to spend any time on this, it's just basically saying that not only are those of us who've been set apart for the Lord to abstain from the acts of sexual immorality, but we're also not even to joke about it. And so he starts dropping hints of how much God cares about it. And then he removes any doubt in verse 5. In verse 5, he says this He says, For you may be sure of this. Paul says, you can take what I'm about to say to the bank. In verse 5, he says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that's an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God in Christ. He says, I want you to know something. You can take this to the bank, that those who are sexually immoral and are impure and are an idolater, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And then he goes on and says this in verse six. He goes, let no one deceive you with empty words. In other words, I don't care what they're saying out there, Paul says. 
Let nobody lie to you. Let nobody deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, idolatry, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. St. Paul is saying the wrath of God, of a holy God, is going to be poured out on the sons of disobedience who walk in sexual immorality and impurity. In verse 7, he says, Therefore, in light of that, do not be partakers with them. And so in answering the question, is sexual immorality a big deal to God? You know, is he kind of sort of okay with it? Is, is it a big deal to him? It's a resounding yes. It's a huge deal to the Lord. And as I just said, the wrath of God will be poured out on the sons of disobedience. And so I think that brings us to maybe an even more important question, and that is why. That's why. One of the things that you can do to root out sexual sin in your life is to really go down and understand why it is that God cares so much about sexual sin. And here's the first thing. And I I had a choice here. This this is such a deep answer, and we're going to kind of unpack it in the weeks to come. I'm going to give you a couple of surface reasons why God cares so much about this kind of sin. And the first one is haunting. And I'm going to say it to you, and it's going to sound crazy, but then I'm going to read you the verse and go, oh, wow, that is in the Bible. The first reason God has such a big problem with sexual sin is the Bible is about to teach us that as a believer, when you sin sexually, you take Jesus with you into that act. All right, let me, let me show you what I'm talking about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. First time I saw this was when I was in my 30s and I was preaching through 1 Corinthians and I read that and it blew my mind. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? He's speaking to the church in Corinth and he says, do you not know that your body are the members of Christ? Now here's what he's saying there. He's saying, church, you need to understand something that your body is in a, not only a spiritual sense, but in a very real sense, the body of Christ. That at our salvation, we become so intermingled and so intertwined with Christ, and because God has created and set this thing up, that we become, with our wives, one flesh, which is a picture of our future relationship with Jesus. We become one flesh with Christ. He says, do you not know? Do you not know that your body parts are the body parts of Jesus, literally? And then he goes on and he asks a question. He says, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Now, two things there. One, that word prostitute, I don't like the translation of that. It's the Greek word porne, and it's just the feminine, um, the feminine gender of the word sexually immoral. So it's not saying prostitute, it's just saying a sexually immoral woman. And he asked the question, now that I know that my body parts are the body parts of Christ, shall I then take the body parts of Christ and make them, he says, be joined with a sexually immoral, sinful woman? And then he answers the question and says, never. He says, I don't want to do that. I wish somebody would have taught me that in high school. Amen? Because I was going to church and they kept telling me that sexual sin was wrong. They kept telling me sex 
outside of marriage was wrong. They kept telling me that true love ought to wait, but I don't, I didn't know why. Nobody told me, okay, child of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Y'all keep hearing me say that from the stage that you're in Christ. Well, that comes from a lot of different phrases in the Bible. One of them is Jesus to his disciples says, there's coming a day soon where I'm going to be in you. You're going to be in me, and we, as we're in each other, are going to be in the Father. We literally become one with Christ. And young man, when you sin sexually, you take Jesus with you. You're forcing him into that act. It is the only, go look it up, it's the only, ver, it's the only sin that does that. Our union with Christ, which is what sex is meant to picture is so united that when we engage sex outside of that picture, we bring Jesus with us. You want to know why the Lord has such a problem with Christian sexual sinfulness? That's one of them, and that's a big one. But there's another one, and it's this. Here's another reason that God cares so much about sexual sin, I think, is rooted in the reality that he cares so much for us is that God cares so much for his holy ones, that God cares so much for his people that he has set apart for himself, that he wants the best for us. And he wants us to experience sex in the context that he, listen, that he created it and he designed and he intended it to be experienced because anything outside of the creator's design and purpose for sex is always going to fall short of what the creator meant it to be. And I mean, here's the thing I want you to understand, and I, I thought a lot about this, that everything has a creator. Everything has a creator. Except God, everything has a creator. Everything, therefore, has a designer. If something, you create something, you design it. And so if something is created and designed, then it has a purpose. And so you can take anything in life. It's got a creator, it's got a designer, and it's got a purpose. And the best use of that thing is to operate it inside of the creator's design and purpose. And so I thought of something that was created, and I came up with a toaster. So I'm going to give you an example of a toaster. I actually looked it up. The toaster was created and designed by Alan McMasters in Edinburgh, Scotland in 1893. That's the dude that came up with it. He's the creator. He's the designer. And, and, and Alan McMasters in Edinburgh, Scotland in 1893, he had a primary intended purpose for the toaster. You know what it is? It's to make toast. And when you do it in the way that he designed it, it works really well. You take a piece of toast, you stick it in the toaster, you push a button, and it makes toast. And then out comes the piece of toast, and it's all warm, and you put some butter on it, and some jelly, and you eat it, and it's awesome, right? It works really, really, really well. But things begin to fall apart. When you try to use the toaster in a way that the original creator and designer did not, intended, did not intend for that toaster to be used, for example... If you try to use a toaster as a football, it ain't going to work. I mean, you could conceivably do that. You and your buddies could go out with a toaster and throw it, and you could try to catch it, but that's hard to do. It's hard to throw, it's hard to catch. And if it hits you in the head, it's going to knock you out. And so not only do we see that the original design, uh, when it's not utilized for that, falls short, but it also can be destructive. For example, you can use, conceivably, a toaster as a hand warmer. You could do that if you wanted to. You can push the button and the little red things start to glow and you can stick your hands right in that thing. 
But what's going to happen? You're going to learn really, really fast that that is not the intention of the creator. That's not what he designed it for. That's not its purpose. So not only is it not going to work, I mean, it'll work real well for about three seconds. And then you're going to learn real fast that it becomes destructive. Okay, that, I mean, just whatever, just fill in the blank. Use it as a, as to warm up your bath water. You're, you know, it's going to kill the toaster. It's going to kill you, right? It's just, that's not what it was created for. Here's the thing. In the middle of all that craziness, of all that using this toaster as a football and a hand warmer or a bath water warmer, whatever, what if, what if Alan McMasters was raised from the grave? And he rose from the grave and he walked up to you when you and your buddies were chunking the toaster around. And he looked at you and said, hey, I just want you guys to know that I have a different intended purpose for the toaster. That, that really, there's a design, and there's, that I created that thing to do something completely different than what you're using that for. Would, would you view that information as limiting to you? Would you, would you view that conversation with Alan as, as a hindrance to your life? Would you look at Alan and go, Alan, hey, listen, here's the deal, buddy. I appreciate you being the creator. I appreciate you being the designer, but I don't really appreciate you stepping into my football game here and restricting my freedoms on what I want to do with this thing you created and you designed. You wouldn't do that. As Alan McMasters would look at you and say, hey, it's really cool. You take a piece of toast and he makes toast and the toast tastes good. You would say, thank you, Alan McMasters. That is very wise information. You would look at that as love and not as a limitation. Sex is the exact same way, church. It is the exact same way. Sex has a creator. Did y'all know that? And it ain't us. Sex has a designer. And it ain't us. The person, the one who created sex and designed sex is the Lord. It is God, Yahweh, the great I am. And he created and he designed sex for a specific purpose. Okay, and here's the thing. I'm going to tell you, and again, surface stuff. We'll get into it deeper. I want to tell you what, why God created sex. It's actually pretty clear in the scripture. Number one reason he tells us, not necessarily primary, but the first reason he tells us is in Genesis. He tells us, he says to Adam and Eve, he said, I want you to... Husband and wife, I want you to join together, become one flesh, so that you can multiply and make more image bearers of God. That's the first thing he says. That's the first. But then you start reading through all the Bible and you realize something. Actually, Paul says it. I think it's in Ephesians. He drops it on us and say, hey, this whole thing, this whole husband, wife, one flesh, sex, joining together thing, that all is a picture of Jesus' love for his bride, the church. Paul just drops that on us and says, this is the mystery that's been hidden forever. Is that's the way God, the reason God thought up marriage is why he created marriage. It's why God thought up sex. He created sex is because when you come together with your husband and wife and you become one flesh, you are showing and reminding each other in the world a picture of Jesus' love for his bride, the church. That's why God created it. And that is how he designed it. And here's the thing, when you experience that 
inside of the confines of the design of the creator and inside the purpose of the creator. It literally is one of the most beautiful things a human being can ever experience. But the moment that sex is experienced outside of the creator's design and purpose, not only does that become sinful, but it doesn't work. Just like the toaster outside, it doesn't work. It doesn't do what it was created to do. That's at its best, it doesn't work. And at its worst, it will destroy you. That's the promise of the scripture. You use this sacred mystery outside of the confines that God designed and created, it will, it will destroy you. And we have a tendency to think, we have a tendency to hear God say that to us and we go, God, you're just trying to limit us. God, you're trying to hinder my life. You're trying to keep me from the best. You're trying to limit my freedoms when actually God is saying, no, you experiencing this only in the confines of why and how I created it is the best you'll ever experience. I did this for you and for your joy. It's wisdom and it's love. I, I, I read an incredible article this week. My wife has been trying to get me to read it for like a year. And I just thought, I'll read it when we get to the sex series thing. And, and I'll make this article available before the series is over with. But I think it does an incredible job of just revealing how we think God is limiting us. But actually, God is offering through this created design and uh, the best. And this guy who wrote this article was a producer of pornography. And he was married, he had kids. He started out just as a regular movie producer. And through a series of events, got the opportunity through a big um, company to do a reality show that was pornography. And he had been looking at pornography. His wife didn't know it. And in his mind, he was like, because he was looking at pornography, he kept wondering, like, is there... Is there another level of sexual experience that I'm missing out on that I'm seeing in pornography that I'm not necessarily experiencing physically with my wife? So he said yes to producing these porn movies and through the course of events, he began to have sex with these women that were porn stars in his show. His wife found out about it, she left him. And so all he has left is, is these women, and he continues to sleep with them. And, and he makes a fascinating statement in the article. He said, you know, for about a month, it was awesome. I was experiencing all these things physically that I didn't necessarily experience with my wife. But he said about the same time, after about a month, it began to be incredibly empty. He said it was empty. And it began to be gross to him and empty to him. And he said, the reason it was is because he said, I could never, no matter how hard I tried, he said, I could never replicate the intimacy and the spiritual connection I had with my wife. He said, I couldn't do it. And he said, I realized so quickly that sex was meant for so much more than what I was experiencing. I thought I was experiencing the pinnacle of it. He said, I wouldn't even scratch the surface. I couldn't replicate the passion. I couldn't replicate the intimacy. I couldn't replicate the spiritual connection. He said, it was completely and totally and utterly empty. Because he wasn't experiencing sex inside of the context in the creator's design. Now, here's the thing. 
I love, I love the quote, or let me just say this. He, he says, or ask you the question, why would a guy, having unfettered, unhindered sex with a porn star, why would he say that it was completely empty compared to the intimacy and the connection and the passion he shared with his wife? And the answer to that question is very simple because unfettered sex with a porn star on its best day, on its best day is nothing more than a shell, an echo, a shadow of what God really intended it to be, which is a love relationship in in the confines of a marriage in order to be a picture of Christ's love for the church. That's why God created it. There's a quote at the end of the article from this guy, and he writes this. I've got it up on the screen. It says, ultimately, porn is wrong, not because it shows too much, but because it shows too little of the human person. Porn turns sex into a commodity. And then, and then I love this last line. He says, porn reduces the great mystery. Remember I talked about the mystery? Porn reduces the great mystery and sanctity of human sexuality to a trivial activity. Okay. Here's what he just said. Pornography or whatever sexual sin you want to fill in the blank with. Sexual sin takes God's design for sex and it removes God from it. And when you remove God's design and purpose from sex on its best day, it is a shell of what God intended it to be. And I'd be willing to bet a lot of money that a lot of you are already starting to figure that out. Married folks, talk to you for just a second. Some of you maybe think here today that there's a greater level of joy or there's a greater level of happiness or, or intimacy that you could be experiencing if you just weren't married or if maybe you had a different husband or a different wife. Some of you may even be fantasizing about a different husband or a different wife, a different man or a different woman. And I just want you to know, based on what I'm seeing in the scripture over and over again, is if that is the road you are heading down, at best you are heading down a road that the creator of intimacy, that the creator of passion, that the creator of sex promises you will not satisfy you on its best day. It won't work. It's not his design, it's not his creation, it's not his purpose. That's that's on his best day and on his worst day. If that is the path you're heading down, it will destroy your life. In church, as a pastor, I see it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Singles, let me say one more thing to marrieds. If that's where you're at, the, the action step is not to quit looking for some life outside of the love of Father, but to... To, to pursue holiness and, and a fruitfulness and a faithfulness and a, and a healthiness to the marriage that God, you know for a fact, has called you to right now. That's where joy is found. That's where the creator's design found is found. That's where the purpose is found. Okay, singles. I know there's probably a lot of you that, that throughout maybe the years you have thought that you're missing out on the best life has to offer because you're missing out on sex. And I would say this to you. The best life has to offer is not sex. The best life has to offer is what sex was meant to be a picture of. And that is Jesus. And if you are in Christ Jesus, he is yours. 
and you are his to the fullest measure. Jesus said that I came so that you might have life and that you might have it to the fullest. Jesus was not just talking to married people when he said that. Wherever you are, married, single, pursue his created design and his created plan. At the end of the day, this whole series comes down to this one thing. I'm almost done here. At the end of the day, this whole series, it comes down to one thing. It could be summarized in this thought. Does God rule and does God reign? It's a question you've got to ask yourself. Does God rule and does God reign? And if the answer is yes, which it is yes, that our God rules and our God reigns, then we as his set-apart people must submit our lives our bodies, our thoughts, our hearts to his rule and his reign in our lives. Because if we don't, the scripture says in verse five, Paul says, for you can be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Church, the wrath of God is gonna come upon the sons of disobedience. But I wanna end this sermon with this thought and I want you to hear me very carefully. Church, there is a radical difference. There is a monumental difference between a son of disobedience and the son of the living God that is fighting against disobedience. It's a radical difference. There is an eternal difference between a son or daughter of disobedience, that that is their identity, that's who they are. They don't fight against sexual morality. There's an eternal difference between a son of disobedience and a son and a daughter of a living God that fights, although they may struggle, they fight for obedience to their king and their father, Jesus Christ. As we go through this series, don't ever forget, don't ever forget that if you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. That if you have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, he has absolutely forgiven you of every single solitary sin you will ever commit or you ever have committed in your whole life. You are absolutely clean and forgiven in the sight of the living God. And that's why Paul says in Romans 8, 38, he says, for there, there's something else I'm sure of, Paul says. He says, for I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor present things, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any, anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Amen? It's good news today. And so today, don't listen to the lie of the enemy that you're a son of disobedience. If you've trusted in Christ, you're a son or you're a daughter of the living God. You fight against disobedience so that we can be a church. That sexual morality and purity is not even named among us. So let's pray for that. Let's bow our heads. Take just a second. Just do business with the Lord. And some of you, more than anything else in the world today, you need to remember that you're forgiven in Jesus. God's not looking at you 
And your standing with him is not based on how good you've done or how bad you've done. Your standing with him, if you've trusted in Christ, is based on how good Jesus already did. You're forgiven on the cross. And so lean into that today if you need to. If there's never been a time in your life where you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, I want to invite you to do that right now. That, that's the answer. Some of you have never just said, you know what, I'm going to follow Jesus. You've tried everything else, not working, and, and, and today's the day. And for many of you, I would guess that as believers that have kind of been walking in sexual immorality, you just need to ask God to give you the strength to walk in the light. As a beloved child of God, be an imitator of him. Ask him to do that. Jesus, we do love you. We thank you for the cross. There's not a person in this room that if you counted sins would be able to stand, not one. But you did, you lived your life sinlessly so that we might have your righteousness. And so Jesus, that's why we worship you today. That's why we can stand and sing. Because we are holy, not because of what we've done, but because of what you did. And so we worship you today, we sing to you today. We give you glory for it, in Jesus' name. Amen, amen. Church, let's stand together. Let's worship the Lord.